I almost lost my sermon this morning. Mm. I uh, I type on type them out word for word. Um, it's just a, a discipline. I call it a discipline because it sounds good, but it's just something I do. And uh, I let my computer die, and then when it restarted, I it has to be connected to the school's Wi-Fi to restart, or it doesn't know where it's at, and it goes all crazy. And so I really quick scrambled and got up to the school and was able to reconnect and get all my stuff back. So I was happy about that. But then part of me thought, yeah, I could, you know, I could, I could wing it. Like I could remember like 10% of what I wrote down, which would make this sermon 90% shorter, which, you know. So we'd have scripture reading uh, (laughs) and introduction. And, uh, and yeah, so, and yeah, the, Warm food in the back. I don't think anyone would mind. What I want to do as we go through this passage today is I'm going to point out that this story follows a pattern that we've seen. Okay, if you've been with us for any amount of time at all through Acts, this is a consistent pattern in Paul's ministry and Peter's ministry and in the early church as they go to new cities, they go to the synagogue, they share the gospel, there's some success, there's some rejection. They leave the synagogue, they preach to the Gentiles finally, and there's some acceptance and some rejection, and there's usually some kind of confrontation, okay? Um, some kind of trial, some kind of comfort, public confrontation like that where charges are made. Sometimes there's, you know, deliverances and miraculous uh, interventions. Sometimes there's um, beatings yeah. and imprisonments, and but the work goes on. So I'm going to do two things this morning. I'm going to kind of point out some of the similarities of this pattern. But I think what Luke wants us to get from this passage has to do with a detail Paul or that Luke tells here that we don't get in some of these other stories, at least not not in the clear way that we see it in chapter 18. So let me read for you verses uh, 1 through 17. After this, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to depart from Rome. Paul approached them, and because he worked at the same trade, he stayed with them and worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. He addressed both Jews and Greeks in the synagogue every Sabbath, attempting to persuade them. Now when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul became wholly absorbed with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they opposed him and reviled him, He protested by shaking out his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am guiltless. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went to the house of a person named Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the president of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians who heard about it believed and were baptized. 
The Lord said to Paul by a vision in the night, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, because I am with you, and no one will assault you to harm you, because I have many people in this city. So he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12. Now while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews attacked Paul together and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God in a way contrary to the law. But just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of some crime or serious piece of villainy, I would have been justified in accepting the complaint of you Jews. But since it concerns points of disagreement about words and names and your own law, settle it for yourselves. I will not be a judge of these things. Then he had them forced away from the judgment seat. So they all seized Sosthenes, the president of the synagogue, and began to beat him in front of the judgment seat. Yet none of these things were of any concern to Gallio. The first actions that Paul takes when he enters Athens are to find fellowship and to find work. God provides both in the same place. He finds a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who are Jewish Christians. They had come from Rome after being expelled by the emperor Claudius. Now it appears that of what happened in Rome was the Roman peace was disturbed because of debates which led to riots between Jews and between Jews who worshipped Christ, Jewish Christians. So to restore the peace, Claudius expels these Christ-worshipping Jews, which included Aquila and Priscilla, who end up now in Corinth. And they share Paul's trade of tent-making or perhaps leather-working. There's some different ways to understand this term. Tent-making, leather-working. Paul becomes partners with them. Literally, he's a co-laborer of them in his trade. Later on, he'll refer to Priscilla. He'll refer to Priscilla and Priscilla and Aquila as his co-workers, as his co-laborers in the gospel ministry. So they become partners of sort. Paul lived with them and worked with them, and they would prove over the years to be some of Paul's dearest friends and co-workers in the ministry of the good news of King Jesus. The second action Paul takes upon his arrival in Corinth then is to preach. He was trying to persuade the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was this descendant of King David and is now also rightfully their king. You might remember that Paul's companions Silas and Timothy had stayed behind in Berea when Paul had to leave on short notice. So when Paul arrives in Athens, he sends a message back for Silas and Timothy to join him, and now in Corinth, they've caught up to him. Now, their arrival is significant, I'm sure for many reasons personally for Paul, but Luke tells us here specifically 
that their arrival frees up Paul to devote himself to proclaiming the word to the Jews. It could be that Silas, and likely that Silas and Timothy arrived with a gift from the Christians in Macedonia that allowed Paul to stop his tent making for a time and to devote himself to the teaching of the word to the Jews. Now, those of you, like I said earlier, who have been with us for even just part of our journey through Acts will not be surprised at what happens next. There's opposition. There's revilement. The Jews slander Paul, and so he separates himself from them. He literally shakes the dust out of his clothes as a way of symbolizing that he's done. He says this, Your blood be on your own heads. I am guiltless. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Paul has done all he can to persuade the Jews in Corinth, and now he's done. So his preaching will be somewhere else, not the synagogue. Now, I laughed out loud when I read this, um, not this morning, but you know earlier in the week. <clears throat> Much to the dismay of the Jews, I'm sure, Paul ends up where? Next door. <laughs> right? He shakes the dust out of his clothes. He separates himself figuratively and literally from the synagogue, but he goes right next door to the home of Tidius Justus. The mention of his home implies that he's a person of some means and that Paul possibly used his name or used his home as a base for ministry or maybe for as a gathering place for believers. The name Tidius Justice strongly suggests that of a Roman citizen. So we see here the gospel has reached an exemplary Roman. He's a man of some means, and he is a citizen, quite likely. And the gospel has reached him. Next, it reaches an exemplary Jew. Crispus, the leader or the president of the synagogue. Luke tells us that Crispus and his whole household believe, and that as others hear this story, many of them believe, and they're all baptized. So can you imagine what the neighbors thought? The neighbors being, of course, the synagogue Jews next door. It looks like a pretty gutsy move by Paul, doesn't it? He separates himself from the Jews. Then he goes right next door and converts a wealthy Roman citizen and then persuades the very president of the synagogue Paul had just left. I can't imagine that the significance of this was lost on anyone. And we know it wasn't lost in the Jews because they bring Paul before the proconsul Gallio and charged him with promoting unlawful worship. Again, this is not a new twist in the story. We've seen this in the plot before. Now, who is Gallio? We actually know maybe more about him than we should. He only served a couple of years. He had some kind of fever that kept him from serving longer, but there, there are historical records of Gallio. We know when he, when he served, which helps, actually helps date this, which helps us date a lot of things in Paul's, um, in Paul's biography. Gallio would have been appointed to this position directly by Caesar and would have been understood to speak for 
and to represent the will of Caesar. He was Caesar's eyes and ears and voice in Corinth. So the Jews bring Paul before him, and they charge him. Now the charge is unclear. It's unclear whether the Jews are accusing Paul of worshiping contrary to Jewish law or contrary to Roman law. Uh, In reality, it could very well be both. Now, under an edict of Emperor Claudius, Jews were allowed to have their own religion. They were allowed to worship and to govern their followers in their own way because it was an ancient religion. The The edict of Claudius didn't say specifically that Judaism was allowed, but that very ancient religions were allowed. And Judaism precedes the Roman Empire itself. So they were allowed to have their own religion, their own way of governing their own people. So Christians, while they were a largely Jewish movement, they had some protection from persecution because of this. As long as they were still considered part of the Jews, they had some freedom in how they worshipped. However, as they break from the Jews and as they become more Gentile in composition, this protection because of the Jewish connection begins to fade away. Now, Gallio knows about the freedom of the Jews to govern their own affairs. And this is his decision. He sees this issue with Paul as a Jewish affair. So Gallio essentially refuses to rule. He tells them this is an internal Jewish concern and not any of Rome's business. He kicks them out from the judgment seat. Now, looking at Gallio, it could be that he's just a very astute right, student of Roman law and customs. Or it could simply be that he just doesn't want to be bothered. And I think the latter is true, as we see. He doesn't want to rule on anything. Look at what happens next. Now, Luke, again, this isn't entirely clear about what's going on in the story. It says that some seized Sosthenes, the president of the synagogue, and beat him right in front of Gallio. So there's a little bit of uncertainty about who the some are. And is Sosthenes the president of the synagogue currently, or is he also now a Christian It seems to me the best way to read this story is that the sum of these are Gentiles present. Sosthenes is the new president of the synagogue who has replaced Crispus, and they seize him and they beat him out of retaliation for them even bothering the proconsul Gallio. So they seize him, they beat him for wasting their time. They do this right in front of Gallio's judgment seat, Yet we're told, not even this, none of these things were of any concern to Gallio. You ever work with someone who's like right near retirement? They just don't want anything to happen. Like you just don't, you know, you don't want to take any risks. You don't. (laughs) That's how Gallio strikes me, right? He just doesn't want to be bothered. Well, it never gets old to me to listen to these stories about how God fulfills his promise, the promise he made to his disciples to build his church and to cause it to remain standing, even in the face of the gates of hell. Now, those gates take different forms. Our enemy is creative. 
Luke has given us a pattern of the church's story in each of these new regions and in cities when the gospel invades. There's teaching in the synagogue followed by success and opposition. There's then teaching in the marketplace followed by some success and some opposition, usually by the Jews from the synagogue. There are charges and trials. There are beatings. There are threats. There are miraculous deliverances. There are escapes in the night. And here, a Roman official who just doesn't want to be bothered. I don't think that Luke gives us this pattern as a pattern we should try to copy, though. I do, however, think he's showing us this pattern, a pattern that faithful followers and messengers of the gospel that Jesus is the king, it's a pattern we can expect, and it's a pattern that we shouldn't be surprised by when we do see it. However, in this story of Paul and his friends in Corinth, I think Luke's doing even more than giving us this example, than giving us this pattern so that it's not surprising when it happens to us. Luke has been showing us what, can we, what we can expect. He's been showing us what happens when the good news is proclaimed. He shows us what happens when followers of Jesus are willing to give up everything to follow him. In this story, however, Luke tells us not just the what, but the how. Knowing that I must endure, knowing that we must remain faithful, even in the face of opposition, doesn't tell us how. I know what the pattern is, but how do I stay faithful when I'm experiencing this pattern? How do we endure? How do we remain faithful? In the language of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, how do we overcome? And there are, I'm sure, many answers to that question, but Luke gives us two essential pieces of information in this story that enabled and empowered Paul to endure and should enable and empower us to endure as well. Now, astute readers and listeners at this point will have noticed that I left out a few verses in my comments on this story. I did so that, so that you would see how similar the sequence of events in Corinth is to what we've seen before. But now I want to look at those verses on their own so that you understand how significant they really are. So in between these conversions of Titius, Justice, and Crispus, and then the Jewish leadership bringing Paul before Gallio, we have a little story about a night vision that Paul had. Visions are important, especially in Acts. In Acts 9, Paul, then Saul, right, he has, well, sort of a, almost an anti-vision. There's a flash of light which blinds him, so now he's not seeing anything, but he's hearing the voice of Jesus. But then later on in the same chapter, Ananias has a vision where the Lord tells him to go and find Saul. In the very next chapter, in chapter 10, Cornelius has a vision where an angel tells him to send for Peter to come and tell him about Jesus. In that same story, then, Peter has a vision, this weird vision with the sheets, with the sheet coming down and the animals on it about clean and unclean foods. In reality, it's a vision about God's love and compassion for the Gentiles. Peter then has another vision telling him to go with the men who came 
from Cornelius to get him. And then in chapter 16, you might remember, Paul has a vision of the Macedonian man urging, begging Paul to come over and tell the good news in Macedonia. So now in chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, Paul has another vision, a vision that doesn't tell him to go, but to stay. It's a vision that doesn't allow him to escape or avoid opposition, but rather it's a vision that empowers him and enables him to endure opposition. In the night, the Lord, probably Jesus here, tells Paul, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, because I am with you, and no one will assault you to harm you, because I have many people in this city. First of all, I hope it encourages you that Paul has a need to be told not to fear. It's easy to forget that Paul is a human being like you and I are. The persecutor turned preacher and proclaimer is a man. He is a follower of Jesus. He is filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that you and I are filled with. He has witnessed and participated in miracles and signs and wonders and powerful displays of God's provision and protection. In fact, in the very next chapter... We're going to hear this crazy story about how pieces of cloth that had touched Paul had the power to heal those who were sick and to cast demons out of those who were possessed by evil spirits. This Paul, right, needed a vision to tell him, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Does this message sound familiar? We find it throughout the story of Scripture in a lot of different places, but I want to point us to two particular occurrences in the Old Testament. One of them is probably quite familiar to you. Joshua is told when he's being commissioned by God to follow Moses in leading the Jewish people, be strong and courageous. Now, much later, Jeremiah is commissioned as God's prophet And he's told to go everywhere God sends him and to say all that God commands him to say. And God follows up that task with this. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. I don't think that up until this point, Paul has been enduring faithfully because of his inherent psychological composition. I don't think he's just naturally strong and courageous and bold, and maybe now at this point it's sort of run out, and so he needs a boost so he gets this vision. I'm certain that Paul has been relying on the strength and endurance provided by the presence of God through the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in Paul's heart. Yet Paul is a man. He is a human. He needs to be reminded that the Lord is with him. We often think and we often communicate our faith as a propositional faith, right? We believe that we are Christians because we believe that a certain set of propositions, a certain set of claims about certain things are true. 
propositions about God, creation, redemption, the future, and so on. But Christianity is also a prepositional religion. Now, I wish I'd made that up, but I didn't. Uh, a writer by the name of Malcolm Geit has pointed this out beautifully, and he says this, I think that Christianity is not so much a propositional religion as a prepositional religion. Everything turns on the prepositions, the tiny little words that define and change relationships. So much of pagan religion was about God's aboveness, immortals over against mortals, eternity in contradistinction to time, about transcendence, about disconnect and otherness. But Christianity brings these little words in. In, Christ in you, the hope of glory. For, if God is for us, who is against us? Through, we make our prayer to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And then he says, and most supremely in with, God with us. Paul does not endure. He does not overcome because of his natural constitution, because he's a strong and bold and brave individual. He overcomes because he knows that the Lord is with him. But the Lord is not only with Paul. He tells Paul to keep on speaking, don't be silent, and then assures him that he won't be attacked, that, that he won't be harmed. How can the Lord make this promise? Why should Paul believe it? The Lord says, because I have many people in that city. Now, what does this mean? Some see it as God's sort of um, overruling sovereignty over any individual. Maybe in this case, Gallio. Like Paul is sort of delivered by Gallio's indifference to what's going on. And that's an example of God having many people in this city. I don't think that's the case. I think certainly God's sovereignty and God's hand is in this story in that way. But I don't think when God says, I have many people in that city, I don't think he means that. I think he means this. I think the Lord is saying, Paul, I'm with you, but I'm not only with you. The presence of the Lord is not only with Paul, but with all of those who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus as their king. The Lord is with Paul. The Lord is with Silas and with Timothy. The Lord is with Priscilla and with Aquila. The Lord is now with Titius Justus and Crispus and many many others. As a way of getting you to understand the impact of this, of these relationships, of, of the Lord not only being with Paul, but also with his friends and his new family members, I want to read to you just a little bit from some closing greetings that Paul writes. Um, first, we'll, I'll read from Romans 16 and then from 1 Corinthians 16. Listen to how Paul speaks of these people. Now I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, 
so that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and provide her with whatever help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many, including me. Greet Prissa, which is Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Also greet the church in their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary. Greet Andronicus and Junia. He calls them my compatriots, my fellow prisoners. He goes on and on in Romans 16. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my good friend Stachus. He names these people who have meant so much to him. I have many people in that city. Turning over to 1 Corinthians 16. The very end. Churches in the province of Asia send greetings to you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord with the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters send greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, send this greeting with my own hand. Paul has these dear, precious relationships from these people he found in Corinth and every other city he visited. But it was not always rainbows and unicorns for Paul, right? I'm going to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1 now. Actually, he makes mention of this at the beginning and the end of 2 Timothy. Let me read this to you. Paul is writing to Timothy. Um, he's giving Timothy some directions and some encouragement. And then he says this in verse 15 and following. You know that everyone in the province of Asia deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Then he says, may the Lord grant mercy to the family of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my imprisonment. But when he arrived in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Okay. Paul experienced abandonment at times by those he thought were his brothers and sisters. But even in those times, the Lord always provided someone. The Lord always provided fellowship and encouragement through someone in whom was also the Lord's presence. It's the Lord saying, I'm with you, Paul. And I also have many others in that city. I want to ask you this question this morning. Where would you be if the Lord was not with you? Where would you be now if the Lord was not with you? The second question is this. 
Where would you be if the Lord was not also with others in your life? Where would you be if the Lord was not also with others? Now, I suspect that it's probably very difficult to answer the first question without also considering the second question. Where would you be if the Lord was not with you? And where would you be if the Lord was not also with others? Brothers and sisters, this is why church is so important. Right? God is with you. If your allegiance is with Jesus, then the presence of the Lord is with you. But it's not with you so that you can go out and on your own, apart from anyone else, carry out his will. It's just not how it's designed to happen. Churches can be frustrating places. They can be hurtful places. I've been to churches before where by the time I've read the bumper stickers in the parking lot on my way in, I'm pretty well frustrated before I even walk through the front door. <laughs> right? There's even a population of people now. Maybe I've talked about this before. They're called the Duns. They're people typically my age, maybe a little older, a little younger, who are or who have become yes to Jesus and no to church kinds of folks. Um, and I'm not here to, you know, people go through things sometimes and Maybe they think they have really good reasons for withdrawing from a church. And maybe it's actually, maybe it's a good thing to withdraw from some churches. But what Luke, what the Lord is saying to us, he's encouraging us that he's with us, but that he's also with you. And that the Lord in me and the Lord in you is what gets the work done. So three things to take with you today. Make sure that Jesus is with you. Make sure that the Lord is with you. Make sure that you can say more than just a reference to the generic presence of God, as almost anyone can do. Is the Lord with you? Number two, make sure that you are with others who also have his presence. Make sure he's with you. Make sure he's with others who also have his presence. Now you're here this morning. So maybe that one's checked off the list. And then finally, make sure that you, and make sure that others who also have his presence, make sure that you're all working together to bring the good news of the Lord's presence to others. Right? What is Jesus' name? Emmanuel. Right? God with us. Make sure that you have experienced God with you and that you are working and connecting with others who have God with them to bring that message that in Jesus, God is near to others. Would you pray with me?